You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, we have quite a special episode. It's the second time in 251 weeks we have a non-West Australian on the podcast. The reason for that is this is someone who is, I think, going to make quite a bit of an impact in Western Australia over the next few years, given his views and efforts towards providing his service that is well known around the country in the buyer's agent space. It is Simon Cohen of Cohen Handler. Thank you very much, mate. Thanks for coming in. Good morning and thank you for having me. You're over here for a few days. What are you doing? I'm here to catch up with our team and I'm also speaking at an event with Ray White and Commonwealth Bank, just on what's happening in the market around Australia from my perspective and generally what's happening in Perth with the property market. Thank you very much for giving us some of your time today. I know the thousands of people that listen to this in Western Australia will be very keen to hear your thoughts on this podcast. If we can go back a second, I'd love to talk about you for a few minutes. Go back to the early days. You started as a real estate agent pre-GFC. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's transitioned into Cohen Handler these days. But if we can spend a few minutes getting some context, both your own context in what you were doing and how life was like back then in Sydney for yourself, but also the market as a selling agent compared to these days. I started as a real estate agent as a very young age. I was around 20 years old. I really had a passion for it. You know, as a young kid, my weekends were spent forcing my dad to drive me around the sort of prestige end of the Sydney market so I could peer over the fences and look at the houses. And for me, that was really exciting and, and what I was passionate about. And I was also, I guess, a bit of a born salesman and hustler. So I got a job working at a smaller agency in Double Bay. That's sort of the, the luxury end of Sydney. Although I had grown up in the North Shore, which was a less affluent area and a completely different area. So I knew no one, but I started out And I remember one day I had a family friend who was looking to move from the north to the east and they were looking for a house with a tennis court. And I pretty much spent my life, back then we only had RP data, there was no Google Earth, I'm showing my age now, but I pretty much learned every house on RP data with a tennis court, every owner's name and phone number off by heart. And one day we were driving around Vaucluse to one of the houses with a tennis court and I said to my boss, I wanna go door knock that house. And we sat outside the front of the house and he just said to me, you're wasting your time. You're never going to sell that. One of the old school titans of real estate will sell. And I said, you know what? I got nothing to lose. So ballsy, but I had nothing to lose. I mean, I had been rejected a million times before. So what was an extra rejection? (laughs) I kind of started walking towards the front door, hearts pumping, palms are sweaty. Not trying to sound like an Eminem song here. (laughs) Sounds like it. I rung the doorbell and a man answered and I ended up going in and having a conversation with him. And long story short, I ended up listing that house and selling it for $9.8 million. And this was a very long time ago. $9.8 million then is probably like 30 or $40 million now, right? And so at age 20, I had done my first deal. That was your first deal? Ever. And you're thinking, this is easy. I ended up selling it to a guy who rocked up in a Holden Commodore and said, you know, no one takes me seriously, but I want to buy a house. So I took him through. He walked back to his Commodore, got his checkbook, gave me a check for $980,000. He happened to be the CEO of Barclays Bank at the time and just was very unassuming. So from a very young age, I learned two things. One, always give it a go because you never know. And two, never judge a book by its cover. 
And those two lessons have got me a long way. And so I ended up joining Ray White Double Bay, which was the office I wanted to work at. And I worked out for five years and I became one of the top agents in that office. But I just kept dealing with buyers. And just naturally, the progression was I would work with all the buyers and try to find them stock. But I could only really sell them the stock that Ray White had. And it was very disheartening every time they'd go and buy something from McGrath or someone else. But also very disheartening because I couldn't actually show them the off-market stock or the pre-market stock that all the other agencies had. And also, I just thought there was this bias towards a marketplace where it's all about the seller. But without the buyer, there's no deal, right? Well, that's right. I mean, contractually, especially in Western Australia, that contract is written by REWA, Association for the Selling Agents, and therefore biased legally in their favor. Correct. But everyone's trained to only focus on vendors, sellers, sellers, sellers. But no one really was working on buyers. And I don't know, to me, it was just like, well, if all the buyers leave or you're not working them, you're not going to sell anything. So for many years, I wanted to start a buyer's agency, but at a young age, earning good money in a good office, it was hard. A lot of opportunity cost. A lot. Eventually, just before the GFC, I decided to go live in LA to see how buyer's agency work because around 80% of people use buyer's agents in the States. What were you doing there at the time? Just I, taking a sabbatical? I was working for free at real estate offices, learning the market, seeing how things go in Beverly Hills. Why I, though? I mean, your early 20s, you're making good bank for a young person why not just keep cracking on what was it in your heart that made you feel you know what i've got to cross the world here and see what it's like over there i truly believe that buyers agency needed to exist in australia buyers needed to be represented and i also had a burning passion to build a brand that if i didn't own it i would want to be part of and so those two things combined led me to do what i did albeit every single person i knew including my family told me i was crazy so long story short i come back i launched cohen handler and the GFC hits. Most people would think that that was terrible timing, but it actually was incredible timing to start a buyer's agency. So I hustled and begged and pleaded and asked every buyer I was dealing with as a sales agent to come on board and- And pay you to help them find something that yep. the GFC was probably not that hard to find. And three did. The first buyer signed on and we ended up buying him a house for 4.4 million that came on the market at $8 million. So already we were able to prove our value. That's why I thought starting in the GFC was great. The next, we bought a house that was also 8 million for 5 million and so on and so on. And so we were able to prove that we could get really good deals and add value for our clients. And what's funny is that those first clients back then are still clients now. Mm. The one client I'm talking about, I bought a property for last week for $15 million and it's one of eight properties I bought for him, right? And so I also learned that Everyone tries to go out and meet as many clients as they possibly can. But if you work with a few loyal clients, that's all you're going to really need, right? A client should be a client for life, not a one-off transaction. And since then, Cohen Handler was born and here we are today. Let's go back to the early days of Cohen Handler. Just as a young fella starting a business, I assume you'd never owned a business before. There's the small things there of HR, of, of paying people, of yep. getting an office together, paying for all this stuff. You know, I've been through the same thing. Obviously, many people listening would have too. Uh, was it quite an overwhelming part to obviously start a business from the functional job of what you love doing being a buyer's agent, but realizing that half your job probably ends up being HR very quickly? Look, when you're young dumb and driven, you don't really think about all of the, those things, right? You just launch a business and go with it. We were very fortunate. Our first employee was actually my mom, 
who had run the account side of a lot of businesses before. She actually happens to be the chief operating officer of our entire group now. So we had someone we could trust who did payments and HR and all of that, who took it off our plate. And we could focus on, I guess, what we did best. That was actually going to be my next question. You've got your family working for you in different capacities, it seems. One of the best things about that is you get to see your parents every day, you get to see your family. Surely that's something that you're grateful for. I'm very grateful for it. I mean, we all get on each other's nerves, but I don't think I would have the business I have today if it wasn't for that, because who else has your best interests at heart? Than your mum. Than your family, than your <laughs> mum. And she's very good at what she does. So it's it's been... Uh, absolute blessing for me. I think that foundation of trust, and you know, it doesn't matter whether it's your, your parents, your family, or you know, one of your most early employees, being able to trust people to have your back, to hold the fort whilst you're out there fighting battles on the frontier. I think that's a huge factor to allow you to scale what you're good at and build a brand and that people can trust externally. A hundred percent. I think that the thing about business is everyone tries to be a master of everything. If you stick to what you're great at and outsource everything else, I think you'll have a much better business. The person who tries to do everything is never going to be able to nail everything. Good point. You've thrown some pretty big numbers out at us already with regards to purchase prices. This was years ago. Obviously, that scaled significantly in, in Sydney or even across most of the East Coast over the last decade. Perth's fallen behind a little bit in that space, but hopefully a bit of space there to catch up. Is it all about luxury properties at Cohen Handler? Are there properties you'll buy at the half a million dollar range for people that can come on the journey with you? Well, firstly, I'd say Perth still has a, a $50 million sale price, right? Yeah, so that's it's, true. it's pretty up there. Yep. Secondly, I mean, we have offices all over the country. So we do properties from 200000 up to over $100 million, So it is everything. Maybe you just quickly sell the idea of a buyer's agent to people at that lower price point, right? There's a lot of competition in that space. Yep. There are people who are getting beaten, in, in, at least in Perth right now, every day. They're putting an offer in at 400 Some's come in at 450 and a lot of the time those are people from sydney who don't have the same fear factor their lived experience has been very different over the last 10 years they've had the world tell them if you just get into property it'll probably double in the space of 10 years we've had the last 10 years saying if you buy at 400 it might be 350 in 10 years so there's a lot of that fear in the market as well to then go and spend money on a buyer's agent when it might be your first home and, and you've saved 100 grand daunting experience to convince someone to value I mean, I think you just summed it up though. If if I was a buyer in Perth and your market is a market where you can potentially buy something for 400 and can be worth 350, I'd want to be working with an expert who's going to find me the property that you buy for 400 that's going to be worth 500. And so I think it's even more valuable and even more necessary that you have a buyer's agent who knows what they're doing and can guide you into the right property that's going to get growth rather than that's going to lose money. As you say, in Sydney, a lot of time you can throw a, a pin at a dartboard and the property will grow. There's a lot of dumb money being made in the last 10 years in Sydney. Right? But here, and, and, and one of the reasons we're in this market is because I, I genuinely think people need expertise more than a lot of other marketplaces around the country. Let's quickly talk about Lux Listings. That's probably the way that people in Western Australia would have heard about you watching you on TV. Uh-huh. How was that experience and how has it changed your life over the last few years? I'm assuming we've got a guy who's generally done well in Sydney, top of his game, living the lifestyle there, been tapped on the shoulder and then things skyrocket a little bit in terms of your lifestyle in the last few years. It's interesting. I don't think my life's changed as much as everyone thinks it would have changed. We ran a successful business before the show. 
all that's really happened is a lot more people recognize us. Mm. Business is still the same, except it's growing. Brand recognition is growing. And so it's been an amazing experience from that perspective. We've given people an insight into what we do as a business, what we do as buyers agents, and it's been extremely valuable for us from that perspective. But my life certainly hasn't changed dramatically from before to after. I still wake up and do the same thing. I still go to work and do the same thing. I still hang out with the same people. So not very much has changed from that perspective. Will you do it again? Absolutely. I mean, it became a great part of my life and actually something that I really started to enjoy doing. It's a fun show. People love it. And it gives people a look into the insights of our lives and what we do. And I enjoyed it. If we do it again, great. If we don't, we've done it and it was a great experience. So, yeah, indifferent. We're on the street. We might actually have a Lux Listings Perth at some Is point. Is that so? Yeah, I've heard that on the terrace, but we'll have to wait and see about that. Let's go talk to the Sydney market. I'm talking to a Sydney person, clearly who knows his market inside and out. Tell us about your lived experience in the market with regards to property dynamics, demand and supply and affordability is probably the third key pillar there. Uh, probably over the last 10 years, if you can, because I'll then juxtapose that against where Perth's been. Okay, so in Sydney, every year, every year, you sit there and you think, we've reached the top and it's going to flatten or plateau every year. Yep. And then next year, it's gone up and we have the same conversation. And then the next year, and then the next year, something sells for $10 million and everyone's like, Wow. And then that same property resells for 15 million and everyone's like, wow. And then the same property sells for 25 million. And everyone's like, wow. And it just keeps resetting the benchmark of prices, right? And Sydney has this phenomenal mismatch of supply and demand, right? There is so much wealth and so much demand around certain properties, yet so few people who want to or need to sell. And so that just continually pushes prices up. And every time someone pays a crazy price, the market resets to that crazy price. And I've never ever in the 14 years of being in business and the tens of thousands of clients I've worked with ever had a single client look me in the eye and say, I'm so happy I waited to buy. Mm. Me included is I wish I did buy back then. I wish I bought more back then because the one thing about the city market is it just grows and grows and grows. And I've got to tell you, like I look at our Brisbane office and when I opened in Brisbane six years ago, for a million bucks, you were living in a mansion. Now that's six to eight million, right? That luxury market has grown dramatically too. Do you think Sydney's ability to have this sustained growth not only comes from clearly sustained population growth and a pretty knackered planning system that holds back supply, but also clearly a much larger pool of much wealthier people? I mean, we've got some serious wealth in Perth. You do. Um, clearly. But fairly constrained to a couple of industries worth of people. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's just an unabating number of people coming into Sydney. Maybe they're internationals. Maybe it is a lot of immigration here from high net worths coming in and going, well, Sydney's the place I want to be out of the cities in Australia. But to continually see this, this median house price, uh, n not even just the medium, but the number of properties continually selling that ultra luxury price point when the median income in Perth is the same as Sydney. We pay the same interest rates. We're all getting population growth. We all have constrained supply, but Sydney's market seems to have far and away outperformed the rest of the country. How does it have that ability to do that? I think there's two key factors. Number one, Sydney siders are born being told certain things. 
being told they have to breathe to survive, being told they have to eat to survive, and being brought up on property is everything. It is just something in the blood of Sydney Siders that real estate is the most talked about topic at every single dinner table. It is just in our blood. It's what every person aspires to grow wealth through. And so I think it's just, I don't know how to explain it, but it's just in the air that property is something that people are so interested and passionate about, which I don't see as much in all of the other states and territories that we're in. Two, I think Sydney's probably the busiest CBD in Australia. It's where the main hub of business is done. And so you've got to remember, there's a lot more people, there's a lot more wealth that wants to put their money into property. Probably in Perth, the people you're talking about don't need to put that much money into their properties. But in Sydney, you put a lot of your wealth into properties and that's why it's become such a big thing. Well, especially when you think about the limitation on superannuation imbalances, right? Yep. You've now got this space where people are now incentivized to put it somewhere else because they can't put in a super anymore. May as well just buy a much more expensive tax-free owner-occupied house, right? Yeah, tax-free. You've hit the nail on the head. I mean, you can buy a house for $3 million, spend 500000 on it, sell it for six million, you make a couple of million bucks tax-free, then buy a place for six, spend a million, then you got a $10 million house. There's not many asset classes that you can make that sort of wealth tax-free. Yeah, it does sound slightly unbelievable to be honest, but I, I do believe it. But something doesn't add up. And when often when things don't add up, markets correct themselves. And I'd been calling for a couple of years that you look at the numbers in Sydney, uh, the affordability index is the one that gets me right. And, and, and I've tracked this across the country. It seems to me that there is a high correlation between when people spend or have to spend 60% of their disposable income on their mortgage, regardless of the demand supply space, the market just buckles under its own weight. People just cannot afford, the bank just won't play the game anymore. And the bank is the biggest investor at the end of the day, more so than the owners, right? We saw that in Perth in 2007, it hit 61%. We saw that in Sydney a couple of times since the uh, Sydney Olympics. When it gets to 60%, now Sydney had been, just before interest rates started to rise, uh, Sydney was flirting with that 60% space. And that's why, in my opinion, even before interest rates started to rise, Sydney's market started to drop. It, it was the fact that that market was already teetering on the edge of affordability and something had to give. And then the interest rates just exacerbated the affordability factor. Now, obviously, Sydney's sitting there at 51%. There's a little bit of space, theoretically, with, with my theory there, for it to keep rolling for demand and supply to obviously roll through. You now juxtapose that with Perth. Perth sits at 31%. At the start of COVID, it was about 23%, which is hard to believe as a Sydney person, I'm sure. We had 17,000 properties on the market four years ago. We now have 5,000. We were buying 550 properties four years ago per week. We now buy 900 properties a week. We had, we had time on market of about 60 days four years ago. It's now 12. Uh, every indicator turns towards what should be Sydney-like price growth. Rental vacancy was at 7%, 11,000 properties on the market. It's now at 0.6%, 1,800 properties on the market. Every single indicator on an asset class, a real asset, demonstrates significant growth. Instead, what we've seen over the last four years, and I think this comes from a small base of equity being regenerated again, a lack of confidence as well. Instead, we've seen... 5 to 12% growth over these times. In Sydney, you look at that with the confidence and the amount of existing equity in there, that would have been 20, 30%ers. 
For me, I look at this and go again, when the numbers don't add up, the market must adjust. And the only way that I can see Perth's market going, and it's already had a, you know, I guess a kickstart from the East Coast early entrance, is significantly up. 60,000 people entered our state last year. That's 30,000 new homes we need. We're only built 13,000. Uh, that's as many as we were building 40 years ago. So when you think about our ability to supply for the immigration, just like Sydney's story was a decade ago, you lived that experience. We haven't. The last time we saw real growth was back in the mining boom. You're here for a reason. It's not just to have a chat on the Perth Property Show. It's not just clearly to go to a Ray White event. What do you think about the Perth property market? And then what do Sydney people think generally about the Perth property market? I'm going to say a few things. One, you used two words in what you just said, emotion and confidence. And those two things are key factors in why Sydney prices have grown 20 to 30% and Perth prices have grown 5%, right? In Sydney, there is a heap of emotion and confidence because there is FOMO, there is people desperate to get into the market, there's supply and demand. And so you can look at every number on the board and every chart and every spreadsheet Sometimes it's just not about the numbers. Sometimes it's just about emotion and confidence. And that is probably a key factor in the Sydney market. All of the factors you speak about in Perth and Western Australia are big factors as to why we're here. Sydney typically leads the way and Perth follows, albeit a long time behind, it follows, right? And for every reason you said, I certainly see a huge reason why people should be investing in Perth. It is going to be a slower growth, but it's going to be a more affordable place to buy. Now, we're talking about all different markets, right? The luxury market in Perth is quite strong because there's not a whole lot of property and there is a lot of demand for luxury property in Sydney. But I'll be honest with you, there are parts of Sydney I'm not confident on myself and that's probably the lower end apartment market, the very big developments, the off the plan, $1 million type properties. To me, they're the properties that are going to get affected. And so I'm not backing those. And when I talk about that the city market's hot, I back certain parts of the city market, like I back a lot of parts of the Perth market. It's about knowing the right places to invest and where to put your money so that Again, you buy for 400 and it's worth 450 or 500, not buy for 400 and it's worth 350. What do you know about the Perth market itself in terms of where you guys are spending your time on the ground? Where are you interested? We're actually spending our time on the ground in two facets. One, it's more the sort of high-end market, which I'd say is between 2 and $20 million, where we've seen a lot of clientele wanting to use our services. And then it's also from through our investment business, which is stuff further out between sort of two and $600,000. That's where we've seen the most demand for buyers. Well, that's probably where you're servicing your clientele, right? You've got that mum and dad investor who's getting in there at the median house price where clearly half of the East Coast seem to be focusing. And that seems to be the city of Rockingham, the city of Mandra, the city of Gosnell. So I mean, every second East Coast buyer's agent is flooding through that area. An anecdote on the ground and from some of Perth's top real estate agents show clearly that it is the East Coast buyer pushing prices up in those areas, not the local buyer. There is, there is more than half of their transactions are now from East Coast buyers, which is insane. I'll be honest with you. I hear stories from real estate agents here where 
Sydney buyers come and they pay $7 million for a house where the next Perth buyer was at $6 million, and it upsets me because they're not doing their research and understanding the market here yeah. and they're just paying what they think they should be paying because they're used to Sydney, but they don't have to do it here. And I get that every real estate agent froths over a, a Sydney buyer here, but well, it's it, easy pickings, right? It, it, it's nearly rounding numbers. Even more so, they should use someone. dollar space. You know, we'll have locals who are coming in. It's still at four ninety five, trying to get value, right? And the Sydney buyer goes, "Yeah, five twenty. Yeah, and that's not maybe. It's maybe to them, it's only twenty grand, but that's another property that the local buyer has not actually competed on that space with because they're still in their shell about the market in a lot of ways or about trying to get value and the east coast person has that lived experience of going one i'm not worried about the 20 grand because i'm confident i'll make 50 next year anyway and two if i don't pay the 20 grand i won't get it and i know what that feels like in sydney don't be fooled like our business model isn't about sydney buyers a lot of people think it is just about sydney buyers we're here for the local buyer that's who we want to assist get into the market and be able to buy in the city in which they live and and most of the time have grown up in, right? And helping them buy the right property at the right price, not get outbid by a crazy Sydney buyer. Obviously, a national brand, uh, I expect you would have a huge database of people who have made a lot of money in the East Coast, whether it's Sydney, Melbourne or Brisbane. And a lot of buyer's agents, I think, are now directing those clients who are looking for value from at least a data perspective towards Perth. Can you tell me what the perspective is from an East Coast investor in your database? If you guys go, well, if you're looking for a real value, it's in Perth right now. Do you get pushback? Do you get people saying, Perth, come on, mate? Or do you get people going, oh, I've heard that's a good idea. What is the on the ground mum and dad perspective of the Perth market? Probably that is not going to see the same growth as in if they could invest in Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne. So that jades me. There's a bias there that uh, obviously I'm very, very patriotic about my state. The world's full of biases. It doesn't mean it's fact. It's just perception. We look at that, again, the affordability space, limiting growth in the first place. The the bank of mum and dad is the fifth biggest lender in New South Wales. Yep, we all know the bank of mum and dad. It's uh, not so much prevalent here because it's not so much necessary. But when you think about that fat in the market and the same demand supply relationship that we talk about, surely anyone who takes the bias away from it, and I know there is bias, but takes it away from it, looks at it and goes, Perth has so much further to go than Sydney has the ability to go. But maybe you look at it from your side and go, well, we've been saying that for a few years now, Trent, and look what happened. The reason we are in Western Australia is because I think it's a great place for people to put their money, and I think it's going to grow a lot down the track, and I think the value for money here is far greater than than anywhere else, right? Mm. So there is absolutely no bias from me. But if you're a Sydney cider, you buy where you're comfortable. If you're a you buy what you know. Brisbane person, you buy what you know. If you're a Melbourne person, you buy what you know. That's just mentality. I don't think it's anything against Perth. You know, if I was sitting and doing this podcast in Victoria, it'd be the same thing, right? People like to buy what they know, not necessarily what they don't know. And so for the people... From the outside coming in, it's our job to educate them on why they should buy here. And for the people who are here, it's our job to help guide them into buying the best asset here that they can. Let's talk about the commercial space for a second. You've opened Costi Cohen. Yep. The commercial market, 
a more complex market. A lot of listeners might not have the same experience in that space. Is it a national presence that you're looking to have in the commercial space too, or do you stick to your wicket in, in New South Wales? We are national and we buy all over Australia. There was a big demand from our original client base looking to get into commercial, and that's why we started it, and then realized there was just a big demand for a commercial bias agency. So It's very um, rare. You don't see many of them in, in our country, which is probably the same story you had in Resi over a decade ago. Yeah, in, Re- in Resi, no one knew what a buyer's agent was. And in commercial, it's easier because they knew us and they kind of knew what buyer's agents did. But the commercial business has really taken off from small mum and dad shops to shopping centers and hotels. You know, there's been a demand for everything. So last question, Simon, before we go, when it comes to Perth's market, tell me the three dot points as to why you focus on Perth's market and what you'll be telling your clients, whether Perth or Sydney, as to what will get them over the line to buy that property. Everything you summed up before are more than three dot points as to why. I'm excited about what Perth has in store for the future. I I definitely agree with you and there's a reason I'm sitting here and there's a reason you're sitting here. Perth has opportunity. It has growth and it has affordability. And I think those three factors make it a very exciting place for people to, to put their money into. Mate, thank you very much. Simon Cohen from Cohen Handler. Really appreciate your time and our listeners will appreciate it too. And looking forward to having you back in the state as often as possible. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!